one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 440, for the week of Monday, December 17th, 2012. Now, if you have downloaded this episode on December 19th, well then, congratulations, you're able to listen to us. But if you're listening to this episode on Astronomy FM, which airs Friday nights at 10 p.m. and then every six hours after that for the next 24. If you're listening to us on that date, which is December 21st, 2012, then congratulations, the world didn't end. Joining us here for this not end of the world episode is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. We'll be talking about that a little bit later, Sawyer, but uh, yeah, good to be here. Thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Doggone, you know, that makes it even seem like more boring of a year than I thought it was. I was looking for some excitement here at the end of the year. Well, we'll we'll get to more excitement, because we got plenty of stories that I think are pretty exciting, at least. And let's go ahead and begin with the first one, which is actually news from today. And that is about a couple of spacecraft that we talked about before, and that was Ebb and Flow, also known as Grail A and Grail B, as part of the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory mission, which that goal was to map out the gravity of the moon. That mission came to a crashing conclusion today on December 17th as they were intentionally crashed near the moon's north pole at about 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. They had completed their mission and they were at a lower orbit with not enough fuel, so they decided to crash it somewhere far away from any historic sites. Now what they have decided to do was to name the crash site where they crashed it after Dr. Sally Ride, who actually had a part in this mission with outreach, right? Yeah, if I recall exactly, there were camp, there were uh, two cameras on board, one uh, on board each one of these guys uh, that could be controlled from here, and that those cameras were available to uh, the school groups who wanted to go ahead and focus in on uh, what the orbiter was seeing at that particular time and uh, see if they could they could go ahead and spot anything and spot any type of uh, lunar uh, topography. But again, it was uh, Sally Ride that kind of championed that, and it's kind of appropriate that that, uh, that region of the, of the moon was, uh, was named for her, so that was kind of a, a nice touch. Yes, indeed, and the mission, by the way, that she helped pioneer was something called MoonCam, which stood for Moon Knowledge Acquired by Middle School Students. And that was through Sally Ride Science. Got some outreach in there, and we got a better understanding of the gravitational map, pretty much, of our moon. So a great mission, and, you know, it was sad to see it end, but it served its purpose well. 
Yeah, the uh, Grail was initially set up. You know, everybody knows why the the what the the mission was all about, right? Oh, I do, and I thought it was just really intriguing how they did it with two spacecraft flying essentially flying formation. I mean, I I don't know how you do gravity measurements, but reading about that and doing it with just the uh, the spacecraft flying formation a radio signal between the two spacecraft and measuring the change in that signal from changes in the spacecraft flying over the surface of the moon being affected by local gravitational changes as each of them goes over given areas. Wow. And I'm not even explaining it close to right, but gee whiz. Yeah, the whole that mission, uh, LCROSS and, of course, LRO, were all really, um, well, LCROSS was there to, to pick up... Uh, uh, any type of water, but uh, um, you know, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and Grail—they were essentially you know, vanguards for our return to the moon. And uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that in uh, one of our stories later. But uh, um, this was to prepare, uh, you know, to map out the gravity areas because if you remember, these little mass concentrations or mass cons were all over the place on the moon, and they were really, really bothering the heck out of the radar systems on, on the original lunar module, and they couldn't figure out what was going on exactly. So it was to basically try to figure out where Altair, the, the, our, the new lunar lander, would have problems. And uh, unfortunately, as you know, Constellation bit the, uh, the dust on that one. And, uh, uh, but uh, eventually, Grail and uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter will, will uh will lead us back to uh, the lunar surface. I hope. I just hope I'm around to see it. An amazingly designed mission, an amazingly executed mission, and sad to see it end, but at least they paid homage to Sally Ride along with ending the mission. Totally agree agree with you, Sawyer, there. And uh, again, my congrats to uh, everyone on the Grail team for a, for a job extraordinarily well done. Alrighty then, so let's continue along with more exploration missions, but this one isn't to our moon, it's to a different moon, right? Yeah, this one's to Europa, a nice ice world which is uh, surrounding the larger planet Jupiter. And as you well know, that uh, world was sort of made famous by uh, the movie 2010. Uh, well, this one, there was a proposal that that was reported uh, last week. This was, I'm looking at a at a Discovery News article written by Irene Klotz, dated uh, Friday, December 16th, basically saying that under consideration right now is a possible seven-day Europa mission. Well, by seven days, meaning that the lander would be designed to last only about seven days. The reason for that is it's probably the most inexpensive way we can get the mission going. Uh, Looks like a grand total of about $1 billion would be required to get this mission off off the ground, it's essentially a pair of two landers that would uh, leave here uh, in 2020 and fly directly to Euro- to Europa. And uh, the idea is to go ahead and drill in and try to see what you, we can we can detect. The idea too, though, is also trying to figure out where you want to land these things. So in this way, you get the most bang for your buck. But it, according to the article here, um, it's saying. Uh, one of the, uh, the the scientists say you can go just about anywhere on the surface of Europa and do some really good revolutionary science. So, the game plan again looks like it'll be for for two landers, uh, one mission, one flight plan, 
uh, as I said, is proposed at, uh, if you're sitting down, is about, at about uh, $4.7 billion. The uh, alternative mission that was uh, offered at um, the American Geophysical Union Conference uh, just about a week, about two weeks ago now, um, is about $1 billion, and they'll probably go ahead and look at that one a lot more closely. But uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed and see if this actually, you know, pardon the pun, flies over at NASA headquarters. The proposal has not been approved yet, but it is under study. So I hope this is something that we take a look at and we realize that, you know, shoot, we've really got to do this. We've never been here before. It's a chance to do some really, really, really cool bleeding-edge science and finding out more about this icy world that, uh, who knows, you know, there, there are ch- chances or, well, maybe, maybe life there. Um, there's a, it's long thought that there's a, you know, uh, ocean underneath all of that ice, and I guess it will, we'll soon find out if we use these drills. So keeping our, keeping our fingers crossed and, uh, and see if we're going to do some, uh, see if we can end up doing some ice fishing on Europa. We'll find out. So what do you think the likelihood of this actually happening is if we can barely fund Mars missions? Well, okay, we've proposed uh, two Mars missions so far. One is uh, the mission InSight, which is uh, being used for, you know, being put together out of spare parts, I believe, from the Mars Phoenix mission. Uh, that's set to fly, we think, uh, on in uh, 2016. That looks like it's going to happen. Uh, the next window is a 2020-2021 window, and I don't know, Sawyer, you're going to have to check me on this one, if that has actually been approved yet. I know it was announced, but I don't know if, if the money is lying around for it. Uh, that mission, I believe, is sort of a redress of the Curiosity mission that's up there, up there right now. It uses the same, you know, sky crane landing scheme and all of that for, uh, for this particular, you know, roving, roving mission. And that is supposed to run at about $1.5 billion. And that is, you know, considerably cheaper than, than Curiosity is at about, uh, $2 billion. So, um, what's the ch- what's the chance? I don't know. Um, if I were a betting man with all of the uh the uh you know budget conscious stuff that's flying around like right now, I'd probably say slim to none. But um uh we'll have just have to keep our fingers crossed and, and see if the science lobby can lobby hard enough to sell the uh the one billion dollar uh plan that was hatched over at the American Geophysical Union conference a couple of weeks about a week or two back. Um, I'm hoping that's the one that prevails. Again, you know, these two landers are designed to land, to last about seven days, but knowing the way we have a tendency to design things, they may last longer. Uh, we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed. But what, what do I think? I'm hoping it works, but I am, I'm, I'm pessimistic. Because I, I, I definitely hope this happens. I mean, when it comes to, one of, one of the most scientifically interesting places in the solar system, Europa's up there. I mean, with its liquid, and it's just, it's just, I think that's one of the most likely places, and many scientists agree to find any even signs of life. So I, I hope that people see that this is a really viable option, but again, with the way that NASA's budget's been going lately, I'm doubtful unless we can get some, 
you know, international cooperation, and then we don't bail out. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get me started with ExoMars. Air <laughs> Sawyer will be here all night. But uh, uh, yeah, the uh, I, I think the uh, this is a this is a grand idea to do some very bold things. Europa is a great candidate. I still say we need a, a, a submarine or submersible on Titan. Um, these are the things that I think we should be doing right now. And these are the things that uh, I think we still need to focus on. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that, uh, that, these, that that mission to Europa does happen in 2020. Uh, whether it does or not, hopefully we can get some other folks on board. Maybe we, if we, we get... Uh, uh, we call on the ISS partners to to help us out a little bit and make it a joint deal, but we'll just have to see. You know, part of what always fascinates me is when we we talk about these things that are so different and so unique from what we're used to, is just the 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 way I think is well, what's under the hood? How does it work? How in the world do they design something? How do they come up with a a plan to to get a spacecraft to get a vehicle somewhere? that they've never really had, you know, an operating <laughs> device in that environment before. And uh, a few months before Mars Science Lab Curiosity launch, I met a, a scientist from JPL, and he mentioned the same thing about Europa. He mentioned a plan for a, another stop in the solar system with a, a uh, explorer that would be essentially... An airborne craft. Um, think of a blimp or something, uh, something along those lines. Something that could actually fly and stay aloft. And uh, it's it's those things that, you know, whether it happens the way it's first envisioned or not, uh, I think it opens the door to some things that are very exciting at some point in the future. Well, we'll definitely remain hopeful, and we'll keep an eye on if that actually comes to fruition. Alrighty then, so continuing along now, I have had a lot of extra reading to do now because Mark's been giving us some great things to look at. Mark, do you have more for us? Doggone it, don't you hate homework even when you're on break? Well, <laughs> what can I say? It, it's one of those things that's gotten my attention recently. And I'd like to mention a NASA webpage that I'm sure people have seen bits and pieces of and again, I challenge you to dig into it because uh, you'll get lost. I mean, I don't mean lost, lost, but you will spend lots of, of very good time reading some phenomenal content. The webpage I'm talking about is blogs, B-L-O-G-S, blogs.nasa.gov. And there you will see a list of a great number of blogs. Let me mention there's some by NASA astronauts, The Great Outer Space by astronaut Joe Acaba, Spaced Run by astronaut Suni Williams, Fragile Oasis by astronaut Ron Guerin, and Letters from Earth by astronaut Don Pettit. There's another one by none other than Administrator Charlie Bolden. There's one that I'd like to mention just a little bit about, and that is a blog called The J2X Engine. And J2X Engine has had 48 posts, so I think there's some things that you could uh, dig into there. And the most recent one is a discussion about how do you measure the thrust of a rocket engine. And they talk about strain gauges and load cells, and in particular, the fact that when you're measuring rocket engine thrust, you have 
to have lots and lots of corrections to the raw data that you measure with your load cells. And this is just one of those things that goes into quite a bit of detail and gives you some grasp of what some of these devices are, if you're interested, that you've only heard the term, you only heard the name of. Another blog that's there is none other than our friend SDO. And they made a post today, December 17th. And it talks about how a year ago, Comet Lovejoy was watched by SDO, stereo, and high note as it passed by the sun. Each spacecraft provided unique observations that had not been anticipated when they were built and launched. So I'm not going to tell you about every blog that's here. There's a lab aloft that covers International Space Station science. There's one on Cassini. There's one on Fermi. There's one on Kepler. There's Operation Icebridge. There's all of these blogs, plus there's archive blogs. So there's things that are kept current. There's blogs that are posted uh, occasionally, not as frequently, but I think you'll find some interesting reading there, and I just want to let you folks know about it. Hope you enjoy it. It's amazing what's hanging around the NASA site if you go ahead and, and you just decide to dig around and look um, on all the resources that are over there, Mark. That's, this is uh, pretty cool to go ahead and point all that out. Again, blogs.nasa.gov. Check it out. All right, so with that, that brings us to the end of our first trip around the table. And I think we're ready to start on our second trip. And with that, it comes back to myself for our next story. And our next story involves another nation that has joined the rank of very few to actually place a satellite into orbit. Unfortunately, that nation, though, is North Korea. And as of last Wednesday, December 12, 2012, North Korea launched a three-stage rocket which apparently deployed an object into orbit which is believed to be a satellite. Now, the satellite is believed to be a second version of their Kwangmyongsung 3 satellite, which they say was outfitted with communications gear. They had tried a couple of times and failed, but this one was actually successful, according to NORAD. They joined the ranks of the United States, Soviet Union, slash Russia, as well as France, Japan, China, the United Kingdom, India, Israel, and Iran as the only ones to have ever launched a satellite into space. Obviously, a lot of people aren't too happy about this one. No, they're not, um, including here in the U.S. And this, this means, too, that North Korea now has an inter intercontinental missile capability and possibly could reach targets here in the U.S. And uh, it, I don't know if they are, how far along they are in their nuclear nuclear uh, capability. I don't know where they are with that. Um, but if they are where we hope we, they aren't, uh, there's a possibility that they could want, they now have an intercontinental ballistic missile delivery system. And this is not good with a, with a rogue nation. Now, my view is this, this launch, was it sort of the, uh, a bit of a, a temper tantrum? I don't know. But I do know that, you know, even China was trying to tell the, the North Korean government, uh, this might not be such a hot idea to do this. So, um, I don't know what kind of sanctions you can throw on North Korea when they don't have anything really to 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 give anyway. Their 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 uh, their people are in, are in dire straits, and here we have a uh, a nation that can't feed its own people. 
but is you know deciding that they're going to go ahead and and try to you know join the uh, the ranks of uh, of the U.S. and and the Soviet Union slash Russia at Dow. And uh, but I'm not I'm not sure what to make of all of this. I do know that it's the world is a little less uh, a little less safer as a result of that that particular launch. I mean, part of this is you know the success that more people are actually getting into space. It's just obviously this adds a whole nother twist to it, which most people aren't too happy about. But the launch occurred, just so you guys know, at 7.50 p.m. approximately on Wednesday, 12-12-12. And apparently the first stage dropped into the Yellow Sea with the second stage falling into the Philippine Sea. So a little bit of a scare, but who knows where this will go in the future. Be interesting to watch, that's for sure. Wonder now if maybe... The X-37B will have any involvement in this now? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Again, that's a good question, but it's it's tough to speculate. We don't know where... I, I don't know what the orbital plot is of the payload that North Korea flew, nor do I know where the X-37B is in relationship to that, nor do I know if, if X-37B can actually observe the payload or not. Uh, again, it's... <laughs> X-37B, as, as we kind of speculated last week, may, its whole purpose just might be just to keep the Chinese guessing and everybody else guessing as to what it's up to, including us. So uh, I, I don't know if, if, uh, if, if X-37B has any relevance to our issue. but uh, And we I'm won't sure. ever know. <laughs> no, we won't. Um, or at least we won't. A different we might, but uh, um, you know, as 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 things get get declassified over the years, but uh, um, it, it'll be. I've got. I, I can't really speculate at, at all as far as what uh, what X thirty seven B might be up to, and if it's going to have any relevance to this to the North Korean problem. Well, we'll obviously be sure to watch out for any future launches from North Korea and. We'll see where this goes, if it goes anywhere. Alrighty then, so, speaking of launches, it's been a while since any of these launches have occurred, and we reached a milestone, right, Gene? Yeah, Sawyer, um, this kind of goes hand-in-hand with with today's news, with Grail. Uh, Last week, we observed the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 17 mission, Um, if you can believe it. It's been 40 years since uh, human beings last left the gravity well and and went to uh, to to visit another world for a, for an expedition of scientific discovery. And uh, uh, Andrew Chaikin, who is um, famous for the, for uh, writing a, a book on on Apollo, which was later turned into a HBO miniseries. Uh, wrote an essay that was uh, published in uh, Sky and Telescope and also with an accompanying video. And he speculates, you know, it's been 40 years since uh, uh, Gene Cernan and uh, Jack Schmidt had uh, had walked the surface of Taurus Littrow on the moon. And um, he says, you know, he misses the, the adventure of Apollo and, and in, in a sense he misses it the way he misses his childhood, but um, he basically 
says too that he's frustrated, and I have similar thoughts uh, here, and I've probably expressed them uh, several times on this program. Uh, basically, saying that that you know, looking at the moon and the expeditions of Apollo, and thinking about returning to the moon, the mentality seems to be, you know, all right, fine, the moon, been there, done that. Um, let me get this straight. We've got only about twelve people have ever walked on the surface of the moon. We've literally only scratched the surface of that area. It's like, again, it's it's like somebody coming over here from Europe and saying, oh, I've seen America, and they've only seen, you know, Jersey City. We've found, you know, we've found there's so much more compelling reasons to return to the moon. And Chaikin explores this in his article, but um, he, he basically says, he ends the article by saying, and I'll quote it here, on this anniversary, my frustration is tinged with the hope that I may yet live to see future explorers pick up where Apollo astronauts had left off, exactly what we were just alluding to. Uh, and its return is long overdue. And I agree with him. And I think that, uh, that it was, it's still wrong to consider, um, the moon has been there, done that, or your father's space program. Like it seems, it seems to be, uh, so many times. I think it's still a legitimate target for human exploration. Uh, Grail has it shown us too that there are uh, other reasons to go back. So has the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So has Elcross. And I think we could build a strong argument for returning to the lunar surface. Um, Number one, it's a place we can get to. We've proven we can get get to it. Uh, it might be right now uh, the limit of our technology. We still have a long way to go uh, to uh, to figure out how we're going to mount a, a piloted expedition to Mars. In fact, uh, uh, Chaikin does say that in his article too. It just seems like we, the moon seems to be bypassed, and it's a place we can get to. It's a place that we can. That that just beckons for further further study, and I I'm I'm with him. I think you know we should go back. Uh, I we've again we've we've discussed this on this program several times. Uh, that I still feel that that the the moon should be in these mixes. Um, Mars, we just I think still we need we need to mature our technology in order to get there. I don't know if if I'm going to see that mission. Um, an asteroid, why? Um, as I said, we've, we've, we've had Rusty Schweikert on this program who advocated, uh, you know, try, who's advocating, you know, finding out more about asteroids, especially the ones that may have our, our name on it if they hit Earth. But why do we have to have a piloted mission there? It's not going to be like Apollo. You don't really land on an asteroid. So I'm, I kind of question the wisdom of an asteroid mission. Uh, so again, I will. I'll stand by uh, Andrew Chaikin in this case. I do believe that uh, possibly that that should be our next step to return to the moon and possibly use it as a dress rehearsal for Mars. I have to agree. I mean, it is sad. I, I know that even Gene Cernan said that he was the last person to step foot on the moon, and he didn't want that to be for this long, hoping that we would return sooner. And obviously, all of us had hoped that we would return sooner. But now, as Andrew Jacob mentioned, is there's the argument of, do we even go back now? I say, of course we go back. I mean, it's been a while, but right now we need a spark of some sort. And once we get that spark going, then we can continue onward. You know, it's great to say, we're going to go to Mars. But 
we haven't even left Earth orbit in a long time. I think we really do need to take that step, do our dress rehearsal on the moon, and then make our way to Mars. And I have to agree with him as well on that. Yeah, I mean, Sawyer, you pointed out, we haven't gone anywhere really in 30 years. The reason why is this shuttle has kind of sort of trapped us here. And uh, I'm not belittling shuttle. Shuttle did, was, was fantastic. It taught us how to work in, in, uh, in microgravity. It taught us how to build things in microgravity. But as a, you know, as a, as a sheer honest to, you know, honest exploration mission, I think the returning to the moon and picking up the baton that was left behind by Gene Cernan and, uh, and Jack Schmidt would be, uh, would be the, uh, the way to go. Because I think that is probably right now the limits of our technology. And to say that that's a backward step, I think, is, is wrong. Well, it's unfortunate that it has been this long, but obviously, we can always hope that in the future, that before the 50th anniversary, that we'll be back. Alrighty then, so, it's back to Mark, who I think has some more great reading for us, right? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, let's talk about another book. I keep finding these uh, interesting things, and in this case, it's another book that you can read online. You can download it as a PDF. And you can also see it as a uh, interactive book on an iPad or Apple-type device. Now, the concept for this book grew out of an educational and outreach project that was conceived and initiated in 2001, so 11 years ago. The title of the book is called Space Nutrition. Now, the author is somebody that I met at the mission science briefing for the CRS-1 SpaceX launch in October of 2012. And the scientist that I met there was Scott Smith, and Dr. Smith has been a member of the NASA Nutritional Biochemistry Laboratory since 1992. He's got some incredible credentials as a scientist and an expert in the field of nutrition. Uh, he's written a book called Nutritional Biochemistry of Spaceflight, but let's go back to this one for just a second. Space Nutrition. It's free. It's for grades 5 through 8. It's in the category of education. It was published this year. It's 82 pages long. It covers both the history of spaceflight as well as, oh, things like an experiment is born. What's a hypothesis? Data collection and analysis of results. And now, mind you, this is written for kids in school, and I think they do a great job. Research in space versus on the ground. What's an analog? Bed rest, under the sea, the top or bottom of the world, and artificial gravity. So there's lots of interesting topics in here. It's written for kids. It's written by some really smart people, and by no means is Dr. Smith the only person that's part of this team. There are a, authors also... Uh, the Associate Manager of Health and Productivity from Chevron's Corporate Health and Medical Department. There's a science consultant for Aussie Professional Development in Manhattan, New York. There's another who is a member of the Nutritional Biochemistry Laboratory, uh, Sarah Zwart. But a number of people that have contributed to this, they've got illustrations. It's a great book. It's something that I think that uh, would be great for kids. And I was looking through it, and I found interesting things in there for myself. So sorry to uh, be repetitious, but hey, guys, here's another book. 
We'll have a link to it so you can read about it and see what method of taking possession you'd like to have. If you'd like the PDF or if you'd like to find it on iTunes, we'll give you the information. All right. Well, that that's an interesting read, and we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Alrighty then, so we are on to our final trip around the table here. The story that I'm going to start this trip around with is catchy. What do I mean by that? Well, I would imagine that most people by now have heard the song Gognum Style by Psy, which is now the most watched video on YouTube. Many people have been making parodies of it, and NASA's Johnson Space Center has decided to throw their hat into the ring, and they created their own parody called NASA Johnson Style. And it is one of the catchiest songs I have ever heard. NASA Johnson Star. Johnson Star. NASA Johnson Star. The clip features astronauts Mike Massimino as well as astronaut Clay Anderson. And it is just really catchy and clever and well done. But the one thing I think that really stuck out to me was that something that we've been talking about forever on this show, outreach. One thing I saw when watching this video was one of the comments on it. This person commented, although it shouldn't have resorted to this, I think NASA needs more promotions like this. People aren't that interested in science or great advancements in humanity, but they love Gognum style. Hopefully it will bring more young people back into the STEM field. And I think that really says it all. What do you think? Do you think this could be a good promoter of NASA? Well, it basically, to me, also demonstrates there's a lot of esprit de corps despite what's occurred, especially over at uh, NASA Johnson. Johnson, they've really, really taken their uh, their looks this year. And uh, but uh, it was also nice to see a, 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 another dear friend of mine on that uh, on that program, uh, Aaron Beisner, who helps me out with the other program that I do here. She's she makes a little bit of an appearance there. So Aaron, way to go! And the Oscar goes to. But do I think it? Do I think this is this could be used as uh, as a STEM tool? Yeah, to a degree, because um, it it features, uh, you know, astronauts and folks at uh, at the Johnson Space Flight Center and what they do and and how they go about doing it. I mean, grant you, they're they're doing it kind of kind of in a funky way and kind of you know in, in sort of a a song parody uh, parody way. But uh, indeed, it kind of profiles that uh, you know what 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 the Johnson Space Flight Center does, and uh, does it with with tongue firmly in cheek, where they're not taking themselves too seriously. So, uh, uh, can it be used? Yeah, you know, it, it might get get uh, kids interested and in, and in given uh, uh, NASA a second look. I think too, it might be giving adults another another chance to see what NASA's up to. Uh, and profiles what NASA Johnson is doing. So, do I think it's a good idea? Yeah. And I got to say, too, I think back to a video that I saw a couple years ago, I guess, and it was uh, along the same style. I mean, not the same style, but along the same lines. It was a, a video with music and mm -hmm. quick, quick video cuts from one scene to another. And uh, it was about the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. And I've not forgotten that. 
And one thing it served to do was when I hear something about LHC, I go, oh, yeah, that was interesting. Now, what's interesting about it? The particle physics or the video that I saw that made me pay attention to this incredible one-of-a-kind device over in Europe. And so I would have to say that uh, this is a good idea. It's fun. It's going to get something that will there will be things that will stick in people's minds for at some point in the future. And maybe someday there will be a trigger that will go, hey, wait a second. I remember seeing something interesting at Johnson Space Center. And, you know, it could be a make a difference. It could be the thing that would change somebody's direction in a good way. If I recall, guys, somebody check me on this. This is sort of a a, a holiday thing that 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 the uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center does. They always kind of sort of get together and do some sort of parody and put that out there uh, around you know the end of the year. And I think this is this is just a a num- well, uh, another one in the long string of that, since uh, you know YouTube and all that became pretty famous. But uh, again, a great way to to kind of show off what. Uh, what the Johnson Space Flight Center is doing, and, and hopefully we'll get uh, not only kids but adults interested and, and see what's going on. Yes, indeed. The video description says that it is a volunteer outreach video project created by the students of NASA's Johnson Space Center. It was created as an educational parody. The lyrics and scenes in the video have been reimagined in order to inform the public about the amazing work going on at NASA and the Johnson Space Center. And as of this recording, the video has 925,500 views with over 20,000 likes. Yeah, and I'm one of those views. And uh, again, hats off to everybody who put that together. And way to go, Aaron. <laughs> I saw, I did see you in there, so way to go. Alrighty then. So, the next story goes to you, Gene, if anybody will ever hear this story after December 21st, right? <laughs> Yeah, you got it, Sawyer. Um, so if you're actually hearing this program and listening to it on Astronomy FM when it does air, I believe, as Sawyer, you pointed out, uh, that will air on December 21st. Uh, this is, again, um, the uh, infamous day where supposedly uh, the Mayan calendar runs out and... Uh, uh, Supposedly, this this will bring on like the four plagues of the apocalypse and all of this. It has got people hysterical out there. Not so much here in the states, although there are you know sort of pockets of you know do we stock up on things and all this. Uh, but it seems to be more prevalent in uh, in China. In fact, I'm looking at an article here. Um, this is by uh, Public Radio International. Uh, and it was dated today, as a matter of fact, um, saying that uh, China is really, really the country that uh, that ranks highest when it comes to these end-of-the-world fears. And according to the article, some 20% of those surveyed expect something odd is going to happen on December 21st. Um, they, they've talked to a few folks, and I'll quote here one individual saying, I heard it's the end of the world. If the world still exists, there'll be no sunlight. So how people in the countryside, every family is rushing to buy candles and store those candles at home and all this. Gang, it's nothing is going to happen on December 21st that's going to go ahead and end the world. NASA has got a wonderful site, uh, 
basically a lovely, lovely little FAQ site basically saying why the world isn't going to end end on December 21st. As far as the Mayan calendar goes, okay, guys, our calendar ends on December 31st of every year. What happens? We go over to the drugstore or, or wherever, and we buy a new calendar, and miraculously, guess what? It's January 1st all over again. And that's what's going to happen with the Mayan calendar. Um, I, I still picture somebody who that was typing, you know, that was just carving this thing and saying, well, boy, boy that's going to scare people one day. But uh, um, that's what essentially happens with this. It probably just goes ahead and restarts. There's no, you know, there's no apocalypse coming as far as, as, far as that's concerned. Um, one, one individual, one prediction is saying, again, as the Chinese uh, individual interviewed, saying there's going to be a total blackout. And no, there is not going to be any kind of total blackout. There is no, you know, universal alignment of the universe and all this that's going to cause a blackout or anything like that. Um, also, there is the infamous Planet X or, you know, Nibru or whatever it is that is supposed to go ahead and collide with Earth. Well, gang, here, here's the deal. If there's some wayward planet that's going to collide with us, it would be awfully tough to keep it a secret. I mean, you could go outside by now if it's going to collide with us and see it visibly. Um, so, you know, again, uh, there is not going to be anything. There's a, there's a, again, there's an FAQ section here on, on, on the NASA website that, uh, I, Sawyer, I guess we'll, we'll go ahead and post it in the show notes. Um, but even so, uh, NASA went and posted a, uh, a video early, basically saying why the world didn't end yesterday. And, uh, we'll have a, I guess I'll, sorry, what I'll do is I'll give you the link to that one too, and we'll post that one in the show notes. But, uh, uh, they were so confident that the world wasn't going to end that they posted it early. So, you know, guys, if, if you are listening to this, you know, on Wednesday, when we usually publish this as a podcast, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Don't, you know, go all kinds of crazy and buy candles and all this other stuff. Um, you'll still have to go ahead and finish up your Christmas shopping or your holiday shopping or whatever you celebrate. And yes, you'll still have to go ahead and deal with your crazy uncle's, uncle's stories um, at the dinner table uh, during the holiday season. Sorry, you know, that that probably would be one of the fringe benefits of the world ending if you didn't have to sit through that but uh in my nephew's case i'm the crazy uncle so they're gonna have to deal with it uh so but but guys don't don't sweat it it's gonna be fine you know january 1st 2013 will show up and the world will continue on and we'll be here talking uh some good space flight stories here next year Yes, indeed. And again, we'll link to all of those, and the video is definitely worth a watch. Alrighty then, so we've got one person left here on our final trip around the table, and Mark, that's you. What do you have for us to finish us off here? Ooh, my turn. Let's talk about spacesuits. Actually, this is sort of a, a short follow-up to something that Sawyer mentioned on a previous show. He brought along the uh, the topic of a gentleman who designs angel wings for Victoria's Secret models being a award-winning 
member of a team that designed a glove that outperformed the current NASA gloves for spacesuits. Well, in 2009, they won a $100,000 prize. The individual I'm talking about is Ted Southern, and he des- designs Broadway costumes and the angel wings I mentioned. The other member of the team was Nikolai Moiseev. He's a Russian-born engineer, and together they formed this Final Frontier Design Studio. They're currently in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and they're reinventing astronaut wear for a new era of space travel. Uh, tidbits of this story come out of the New York Post. Now, these guys met through this NASA contest, and they decided to go into business in designing spacesuits. They're also doing something rather unique. They're teaching aspiring cosmonauts the basics of do-it-yourself spacesuit building. For $550, equipment included, the students at this Third War Design Workshop, they've learned casting and molding, taking their first steps towards making their own suits. Now, they're not ready to walk out and board the International Space Station, but they are learning in a six-class session how to craft a finger and part of a helmet, and they learn how the rest of the process works. Now, one of the things going back to 2009 and that spacesuit glove that they designed, they found a way of making gloves more flexible to make equipment more affordable and spacesuits easier to put on. Now, think about it. According to what I read in the article, their phone started ringing a little bit more than previous after the SpaceX CRS-1 launch, and people started thinking about, oh, wait a second, all these private space companies are coming along. That means they're going to need spacesuits for people, and that includes both suborbital as well as orbital launches. They're not being served, so they see them as their customers. And so... The tough part is the private space industry hasn't really got people in orbit yet. They're banking on an industry that doesn't exist, but I think it will. And if you think about recently, the daredevil jump from the record altitude, Felix Baumgartner, one of the things that just about scrubbed his mission was the difficulty he had with his spacesuit, a little claustrophobic and uh, and some problems that... Uh, gave him a thought as to whether he really wanted to be doing that or not. Of course he did, broke the record, etc. What can you say? There are also some smart guys that decided that for their, uh, they're on to their third generation spacesuit at this point. They decided to raise some money via Kickstarter and uh, they raised $27,000 in getting that third gen suit started. Anybody who pitched in $550 got a pair of zero gravity pants one person pitched in $10,000, and he'll get his own spacesuit. So I think it's kind of interesting that uh, this is a part of spaceflight that you don't really think about, but we talk about private space and commercial space. They certainly have to have a provision to keep their people safe, even if it's for a suborbital flight. You mentioned the uh, the infamous Red Bull jump that uh, happened a while back ago. Uh, a lot of people were just saying that was some sort of stunt and all that, and as you rightly pointed out what uh, what almost scrubbed that that uh, that attempt that day was uh Baumgartner's suit kind of uh you know causing a, a little bit of a problem and uh a lot of people thought that you know that was just nothing more than just a a stunt but uh there were some you know spacesuit implications there and on a more serious note 
if this is a good time to mention it, I've got something I want to pitch in here since we're getting close to the end of 2012. Not long ago, we mentioned a website, and I think we were joking around initially about this petition for the U.S. to build a uh, Star Wars-style Death Star. And um, it occurred to me when you were talking about North Korea launching a rocket, you know, maybe we need that Death Star uh, sooner than we think. At any rate, back on to the serious note. I'd like for people to take a look at petitions.whitehouse.gov. That's P-E-T-I-T-I-O-N-S dot whitehouse dot G-O-V. And do a search there for NASA. If you don't care, that's fine. But if you'd like to sign a petition to increase the budget of NASA, since we mentioned it on a recent show, they went from 4,000-something to 10,000-something. They need 14,359 signatures by January 4th of 2013 for this petition to be considered by the White House. Basically, it says increase the budget of NASA. Now, there's more to it than that, but I'd like for you folks to go ahead and look it up. You know, we're about two weeks into it and about two weeks to go. We care about the U.S. space program, and we want it to get its due share. Thanks for, for bringing that up, Mark. Um, I just checked the uh, the account because uh, I've been, ever since we talked about it last week, I've been really kind of posting uh, this on Twitter. I've been kind of plugging it on Facebook and so on. And uh, we're, we're about 14,324 signatures shy on this. Now, I didn't start this petition. Mark, neither did you. But uh, it, we need about 25,000 uh, signatures in order for it to be considered by the White House. And shoot, guys, if we could go ahead and, and have the White House consider this petition to invest in the future rather than going ahead and building some sort of fictional starship, um, I think we're doing our country a service so and and trying to go ahead and invest in the future rather than than you know go off and do some you know really darn fool stuff so um again good i'm i'm all for this and uh we'll keep uh we'll keep an eye on this petition and uh and bring it up as as things move along yes indeed and with that that brings this episode to its conclusion I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And uh, 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 just real quick, a uh, good luck to uh, Chris Hatfield, who is uh, going to go ahead and take off this Wednesday for Expedition 34 to the ISS. And uh, again, I want to send my uh, my sincere condolences to everybody that was affected by the tragic events that happened in Connecticut this past uh, this past Friday. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you to our listeners for bearing with us through all the thick and the thin of 2012. We got some more stuff we'll be sending out to you the rest of the year. So keep your eye on your favorite podcast application because we'll be with you. Yes, indeed. This is the final news show of the year 2012. We still have one more episode left for you guys. To finish off our fourth season, which, in case you didn't know, is why our numbers are up to 400. We're not at 400 episodes. But we are going to end off season four with a special episode that Mark has for us, and then we're going to start off 2013 with a very special interview. So we hope you'll stay with us for all of those. But until then, happy holidays to everybody, and as always, 
Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.